Okay, we're going to continue this morning through the book of Matthew. We are getting really close to the end. Today we're going to talk about tested in the garden. Tested in the garden. But before we do, let's pray together one more time. Lord Jesus, you are a long way now from... The time we talk about today where you were tested in the garden. You now reign from heaven on your glorious throne. Having accomplished your work. And you will soon come back to gather your people to yourself. And judge the world. So Lord, help us to wait well. And help us to learn this morning how to how to be a citizen of a kingdom that's not of this world it's in Christ's name we pray Amen if you have a Bible you can turn to Matthew chapter 26 Matthew chapter 26 y'all got contacts and um, y'all will see me push up my glasses that are not there out of habit, so if that's distracting, I'm sorry. I just can't help it. Okay, so we're going to talk about Jesus today. He's in his final days and, well, his last day, and he has just had this final Passover with his disciples, and he has transformed the meaning of the Passover, which is why Christians don't celebrate the Passover. He's transformed the meaning of the Passover because, you know, if you've read the Bible at all, it's not hard to see how the Passover was really about Jesus the whole time. When God sees the blood of Christ applied to our hearts by faith, He passes over us in judgment. And so the Passover gets transformed into the Lord's Supper where we remember what He has done for us. And... With that transformed Passover, Jesus goes to the garden for this hour of trial where he will be abandoned, where he will be unjustly arrested, ultimately leading to his crucifixions. And I think, I think there are some important lessons to learn from Jesus in the garden. That's what we want to talk about. We talk about tested in the garden this morning from Matthew chapter 26. If you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. 
And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with him to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. The word of God. You may be seated. We see three things in this passage that I want to discuss this morning. Number one, misguided courage. Misguided courage. Number two, total surrender. Total surrender. Number three, fulfilled scripture. Fulfilled scripture. Misguided courage, total surrender, and fulfilled scripture. First, I want to look at misguided courage. The disciples, as we said, have just completed an intimate and final Passover meal with their Lord. And they sang a hymn, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. But Jesus tells them this. He says, you will all fall away from me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, 
and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, we've seen throughout the book of Matthew, and especially even leading up to these last days, that the disciples, they believed in Jesus, of course. But they still had misconceptions about who Jesus was and what he came to do and what that was going to look like. Now, the, Jesus, the disciples, they, they, can't, they don't grasp the significance of the hour that they're in. And he tells them that they will all fall away from him because of what's about to happen. Now, if you're one of those disciples, you're you're jarred, you're confused, you're rattled. What does that mean? What's about to happen? I don't understand. And what's even more jarring about what Jesus says is he, he actually backs it up with scripture. He will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So their abandonment of Jesus is actually a fulfillment of Scripture. Not only will they fall away, but it was foretold in Scripture. The passage that Jesus quotes is Zechariah 13, 7, which I read Zechariah 13 earlier. It's a remarkable passage because it's, it's filled with messianic overtones. And so just let me encourage you, whenever... A passage of scripture is quoted in the Bible. You should go back to the Old Testament and you should look at the context of that passage because you have to remember the context in which these these authors are writing. They're writing in, in many cases, especially the book of Matthew. He's writing largely to Jewish Christians who would have a thorough understanding of the of the Old Testament. And even you, if you're familiar with scripture, if someone quotes a Bible verse in your mind is awakened, not just that single verse, but the whole context in which that verse is embedded. It would be the same way for the Jews when they're reading this book of Matthew. And that's what Matthew intends for us to understand. The whole context of Zechariah is going to be brought to mind in, the, in their minds when Jesus quotes this verse. Just a little bit before Zechariah 13, 7, which Jesus quotes in Zechariah 12, 10, this is what it says. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. Then, as we read earlier, Zechariah 13, 1, it says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And then immediately after the verse Jesus quotes, Zechariah 13, 7, in, thir- in verses 8 and 9, it says, And the whole land declares the Lord, Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So if you go back and you look at the context of Zechariah, that they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him, that there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness, we learn that what is Jesus doing? Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand that what is about to happen is not just the, the unfortunate murder of a Jewish itinerant 
preacher. But that what is about to happen is an event of unspeakable theological significance that has been prophesied throughout, throughout all of Jewish history. That is the fulfillment of God's purposes and promises for the whole world. So Jesus is beginning, he's trying to implant in them to grasp the significance of the hour in which they find themselves because they just, they don't get it. And so even then by invoking this passage, right, and he, he's, he's calling all these themes to mind. We know already from the book of Matthew that, that Jesus' death will not be an ordinary death. In the very beginning, the, the angel told them, you shall name him Jesus, which means, which means the Lord saves because he will save his people from their sins. Okay, Jesus himself said that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so his whole ministry has, has been misunderstood by and large, even with his own disciples. But as Jesus said, for those with, with ears to hear and with eyes to see, they get it, at least in part. They begin to grasp what's taking place. And so that's the question. Do we have ears to hear and eyes to see? Even for his disciples, there would be one final test. Remember what Zechariah said? That one third will be spared. They will be refined by fire and tested. Right? This would be a test for the disciples. They would be refined by fire. In this case, this would be a test that they all would fail. They must fail. Jesus would have to go through this hour alone, forsaken and abandoned to fulfill Scripture. Now, Peter couldn't stand the thought that Jesus would tell, was saying that they would all fall away. Everyone else will abandon you. You see, it's ironic, it's ironic when you know the story that it's Peter that won. Peter is the one who says, if they all fall away, Jesus, I won't. Peter's the right-hand man. Peter's numero uno. But the, y'all like my Spanish? But despite his protestations to the contrary, not only would Peter deny Jesus that very night, he would deny him three times before the cock crowed. Now, we've got to give Peter some credit because instead of just immediately being crushed by the weight of Jesus' prediction, he, he doubles down. I want Jesus even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. What's going on in Peter's heart right now? I think it's this. Peter loves Jesus. Peter is fiercely loyal to Jesus. That's, that's what I admire so much about him. He's fiercely loyal. But there is one problem with his conception right now. And that is Peter is fiercely loyal. At this time, I think to a misconception of what it means to follow Jesus. Peter had real, earnest, burning courage for following Jesus, like we all should have. Perhaps, G, perhaps Peter viewed himself like the Maccabees a, hundreds, a, a couple hundred years earlier, who roamed the temple from unclean Gentile hands, who were willing to fight to the death for, for the Jewish nation and for the Jewish land. He really was fiercely loyal to King Jesus. And if that meant standing by Jesus' side to the death, then so be it. But there's a catch. 
what if death standing by Jesus' side wasn't as glorious as he expected it to be? What if standing by Jesus' side is less like storming gates like a lion and more like laying down one's life like a lamb? You see, Peter was willing to die for Jesus. Are we willing to die for Jesus? That's something you should think about. Because it's never out of the question that you may be forced to give an answer to that question. It's happening today all over the world. It could happen here. But it's not, but there's even more to that. It's not just willing, it's not just are we willing to die for Jesus? There's an there's a important question, follow up question to that. Are we willing to die like Jesus? Are we willing to be mistreated and not defend ourselves? Are we willing to be maligned and slandered? And falsely accused. And say nothing in our defense. You see it's easy to die like a hero. But don't forget. Jesus died like a criminal. And if we're going to be like Jesus. We're called to the same kind of death. That is the way of Christianity. It is the way of the cross. It's the way that at this point, it's the test that at this point Peter failed. Because he said that he was willing to die with Jesus and he even pulled out a sword to prove it. But then when it came and Jesus was being accused, he wouldn't even say that he knew the man. This is the way of Christianity. The least shall become the greatest. Those who humble themselves, Christ will exalt. So number one, we see misguided courage. Misguided courage. Number two, we see total surrender. Total surrender. We see this from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you're familiar with this story. He says, uh, sit here while I go and pray. He takes Peter and James and John with him and says he began to be sorrowful and troubled. My soul was sorrowful even to death. Remain and watch with me, he says. He goes a little further. He says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He comes back and he finds his disciples sleeping and he says, you couldn't watch with me for one hour. Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so he goes and prays the same thing twice more. And then he wakes them up and the mob is coming. You see, the disciples are tested. But their zeal for their view of the kingdom doesn't quite accord with the kingdom that Jesus is actually bringing in. And the Bible... It's so, it's so dense, it's so rich, it's so, there's so much symbolism and beauty there that I, I think we miss. And one of the things is the fact that Jesus is here and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
It would have been a familiar place with the disciples. I didn't realize this till I went to, um, I just did that again, y'all, with my glasses. Um, I didn't realize this till I went to Israel uh, a few years ago. Uh, Gethsemane means olive press. I think, I think that a, a Jew, an ancient Jew, reading Matthew's account about what happened to Jesus, I think the symbolism would not be lost on him. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, of the olive press. And it is there that Jesus bearing the weight and the, of the mission that God has laid on him, contemplating the, the weight of sin that he's about to bear for the world, the judgment of God that is about to fall on him so that he can save sinners, and he's being pressed to the point that he sweats drops of blood. He's being squeezed in the press. And he's being squeezed in all kinds of ways, right? Because he has the inner three, Peter, James, and John. He's sorrowful and troubled. These are his closest friends, his closest friends. My soul is sorrowful to death. Remain and watch with me. He falls on his face in agonized prayer. This is, I think, the greatest example in history of total surrender to God. And the greatest example in history of missing the magnitude of the moment. Have you ever been in a situation where later you look back and you realize, wow, that was way more important than I realized at the time? I think about our our first child and in that delivery room, there's... Nurses and doctors and screaming and um, you can you can you can miss in in all in all that's going on you can miss the magnitude of the moment. New life has been brought into the world, but see here, this is perhaps one of the weightiest moments. That has ever happened in human history. And Jesus has to go through it alone. He is contemplating bearing the weight of the sin of the world. And his best friends are asleep. They're not praying for him. They're not helping him bear this weight. They didn't realize the magnitude of the moment. He would drink the cup, he says. He says, let the, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup clearly refers to God's wrath due sin. Psalm 75, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, foaming with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Jeremiah 25 says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, uh, thus the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. 
They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. The cup in the Bible represents God's just wrath due to the sins of the world. And it often has, and in the Old Testament, as we just read, it often has international import. So again, there's symbolism there. The cup that Jesus is, is drinking is the cup of God's judgment that is due to the whole world. Jesus would be bearing the wrath of God due not just Jews, but the whole world. All who would believe in him. Sin will not remain unpunished. Someone must drink the cup. Why? Because God's a just God. If people, I think there's lots of misunderstanding today, but one thing that is understood is that there is such a thing as a need for justice. And God will make sure that justice is met. It might not be on our time frame, but it will be on His. And it will be just and righteous because God sees and knows the intentions of the heart. There is a need for justice. The cup must be taken. Someone must drink it. And for Christ's people, for those who believe in Jesus, He drinks it for us. He has drunk in it for us. That's the gospel. That's what it is about. We surrender all to Him because He surrendered all for us. His prayer is probably the greatest act of surrender in human history. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, as God the Son incarnate, very God of very God, still lived in full and total surrender and submission to the will of His Father. And think... And Jesus, of course, is our example in everything. And we just can't miss, we just can't miss the otherworldliness of this prayer. Because the quintessential claim of the world, the flesh and the devil, is you do you. You do what makes you happy. The only test of what is right for you to do in life is you do whatever makes you happy. And Jesus says, no! That is not the test of my life. That is not the test of what I'm going to do. I am not going to do whatever I want to do. Father, not my will, but your will be done. That's what I want to do. Christianity Speaks a different word. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. If you don't want to deny yourself, you can be anything you want, but you can't be a Christian. Because what it means to be a Christian is to say no to me so I can say yes to God. That's what the definition of Christianity. It is not embrace yourself. It is deny yourself. That's a radically different story than most people are hearing today. And I just want to say, if you understand what I'm saying, there's freedom in surrender. 
you can never know the joy and the purpose and the hope and the mission and the glory of what it is like to know and love and serve and be known and loved and served by God. You cannot know that. You can't know that unless you say no to yourself. And so many people miss out on the glory of what it is to know God because they can't do anything but say yes to themselves. Jesus is showing us the way of serving God. He's showing us the way of knowing God. It comes in surrender. It comes in saying, not my will, but thy will be done. And you see, there's, again, there's so much, there's so much beauty in, in what, is, what is happening here in Jesus' life. In God's sovereign appointment of the way that he decided to work it out. Because think about this. There's another garden in the Bible. Important garden. The Garden of Eden. And there was a man in that garden called Adam. And Adam too was faced with a, a test, a crisis. And God told him what he must do. And he was faced with the decision whether is it going am I going to say to God, my will be done? Or am I going to say to God, thy will be done? And Adam failed the test. And guess what? We're just like him. So what did God do? He made a promise. He made a promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so he raised up a man in the fullness of time, a second Adam, who would also be tested in the garden. But this time he would say, not my will, but thy will be done. And in that moment, in the agony of the second garden, in the way that Sin entered into the world in that in second garden. Jesus began to take sin out of the world on himself. So the call for us is to learn from Jesus, to learn to surrender it all to him. I feel it. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. God help us to be surrendered to him. The final thing I want to look at this morning, misguided courage, total surrender, and then finally, fulfilled scripture. Fulfilled scripture. It says, while he was still speaking, verse 47, Judas came, one of the twelve, with him. Great crowd with swords and clubs. The betrayer had given them a sign. The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. He comes to Jesus at once, says, greeting Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus says, friend, do what you came to do. 
they came and laid their hands on Jesus and seized him. Behold, one of those who was with him stretched out their hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this had taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus is betrayed with a sign of affection. And what is his response? Friend, do what you came to do. You see, I don't, I don't know if you've ever felt betrayed by a close friend. But Jesus knows that there's something bigger going on. And he's committed to doing what he came here to do. His agonized prayer, the sweat drops of blood, have prepared him for this moment. And he has received the answer to his prayer. There is no other way. There is no other way. There is only one who can drink the cup. And it is Jesus. And he's ready. He alone is able to drink it and fulfill the purpose for which he was sent. And so upon the kiss, the mob accompanying, accompanying Judas seizes Jesus. And we, ha- we have confirmed for us the misguided courage of the disciples. One of the disciples, uh, who we know from the Gospel of John, was Peter, pulled out his sword and struck the Malchus, the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And um, they, they come, they're, they're coming and they're taking Jesus. And perhaps Peter is thinking, this is it. This is the moment. This is the hour. They're trying to take Jesus. We're going to take the kingdom instead. And he gets rebuked. He cut off his ear. And I still can't figure out with a sword how you can cut off an ear and not do any more damage than that. I just, that he must have turned his head just the right way at the right time to, to get missed by the rest of the sword. It's probably a mercy to Peter that he didn't do more damage than that. He was ready to fight for Jesus, but Jesus says, this isn't, this is not the kind of battle that I'm fighting. If the kingdom of heaven was merely political. If the kingdom of heaven was merely a matter of military might, if the kingdom of heaven was about setting up just another empire or nation state, if that's what it was about, I could ask my father to call down 12 legions of angels to evaporate these folks on the spot. But I'm not going to do that. 
Because that's not what it's about. I'm a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom. And besides all that, the scripture must be fulfilled. You see, Jesus gives a rebuke to the mob as well. Scathing. I was there, guys. I was in the temple every day. If I was a criminal, if you were right, if you would have been in the right to arrest me and condemn me, then why didn't you do it out in the open, out in the public, where everybody could see? But they waited until secret and they waited at night away from the crowds. Why? Because it wasn't justice. It wasn't catching a criminal. It was a hit job. It was merely getting rid of a problem. The Bible says darkness hates the light. Lest its work should be exposed. And Jesus says all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And so we see twice in a span of three verses, verses 54 and 56 there, that Jesus says that the scriptures must be fulfilled. Peter must not fight because the scriptures must be fulfilled. The mob must get its wicked way because the scripture must be fulfilled. And what that tells us is that everything... No matter how bad it seems for the disciples, no matter how bad it seems for their perception of the kingdom of God, no matter how bad it seems for Jesus, the fact that all of this is happening and must happen so that the scriptures must be fulfilled tells us that everything is going according to plan. Sometimes it might seem like evil wins when everything is going according to plan. How do we know that? Because the wickedness of men, the greatest evil ever committed, the unjust arrest, trial, and murder of the Son of God, Produced the greatest good that has ever been done. The salvation of the world. Mob? The plan. Kangaroo court? The plan. Pilate washing his hands of the whole thing? The plan. All of these, all the, the Sanhedrin. Pilate, the mob, the crowd, they all thought they were in control of the situation. They weren't. It was all part of the plan. As we close this morning, I just want you to think about something. Have you ever wondered why your life has played out the way it has? The good, the bad, the ugly. 
Have you ever stopped to consider that maybe it's all according to plan? And maybe God has brought about the good, the bad, and the ugly to bring about a greater good than could have been accomplished without it. Are we willing, like Jesus, in the hour of our grief and sorrow and trial and pain, are we able with Jesus to say, not my will, but thine be done? Are we able to trust the plan? I just want to say that if you belong to Jesus Christ this morning, Everything's going according to plan. And whatever you're going through, you call upon him, Zechariah said, and he will answer you. And he will say, this is my people. And you can say, that is my God. If you don't know Jesus this morning, here's the plan for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then you'll have all the power of heaven at your back to bring you exactly where God wants you to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning. Everything happened to you, Lord Jesus, because the scriptures had to be fulfilled. All of our days are written before they were, God, in a book. You have appointed the times and places of our lives and of our dwellings that we may seek you and find you and know you. Lord God, help us to be like Jesus. Help us to be like our Jesus. Help us to surrender wholly and fully to you. Whatever place we find ourselves in in life, help us be able to say, not my will, but thine be done. Lord, maybe somebody in this room right now is going through a heavy trial. God, I pray that you would give them the grace to call upon and trust in you. And I pray that it will not be long to the day when they can look back and see that it was all going according to plan. And finally, God, I pray for someone who might be listening this morning who has yet to hope in you. I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see. That your death, Lord Jesus, would not, was not just a sad and fortunate event in the history books. But the salvation of the world through the death and resurrection of the Son of God. And I pray they may look on you in faith this morning and be saved. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.